Just like yesterday, I was doing some yard work, and I was in my backyard, and all of a sudden, uh, this gang, that's what they look like, this gang of eighth graders walked by, and they were in the common ground. I have common ground, so they were like 50, 60 yards from me. So I yelled out, and I had a hose watering some shrubs. I said, hey! And these guys looked at me, and first they didn't even speak. And I said, I said, hey! And so one of them spoke, and I said, what are you guys up to? Because it looked like T-R-O-U-B-L-E. And uh, you don't think of gangs in subdivisions in West County, but they were heading for the woods, and they had sacks over their heads. So, and we've had kids go in our woods and do drugs. So I said, what are you doing? Oh, we're going over to so-and-so's house. So I said, okay, God bless you. And they just stared and went on. Well, about 30 minutes later, here came another gang of eighth grade boys. But in this gang, I knew three of them. One of them was little Jonathan Trout. And so I get to talking. There's five in this gang. They're coming down the sidewalk, so they can't get away from me because, one, I just put my hug right around. He couldn't go anywhere. And he was a little guy from the city. And we started talking. What are you going to do? Well, we're going over here, and we're going to play football. Well, maybe I'll play with you. And two of these little guys, I played football, and they know there's no quarterback in the world among eighth graders that's better than Pastor Phil. I said, well, how many guys you got? I might play with you. And immediately the little guys, Jonathan, he wanted to be on my team because he knew we would win. And it just so happened, I don't even know, Mama, if you know this, but one night, other night, I stopped by when you guys weren't there, and Jonathan had come forward during hot summer nights saying, he needed to be saved. And so, of course, a few years ago, he had made a profession of faith. And so I stopped by, and he was there, and I just said, let's talk about that. Jonathan, where are you? As I'd talked to Mom and Dad about that. And he came to the conclusion, has he talked to you about that yet? That he said, you know, Pastor, I, I believed in Jesus, and I loved Jesus several years ago, but I didn't understand repentance. But during hot summer nights, now he's 14, God broke his heart for his rebellion toward God, his mom and dad. And he said, I truly repented and received Christ, and I was born again. And uh, so yesterday, as we're talking, and I go from football to sharing the gospel, I said, you know, guys, just let me ask you, where are you? Where are you? And I, I said, now, this is Jonathan, you know, we were just talking two nights ago, and tell him, Jonathan, what you've done. I thought, we want to go public with this. And Jonathan has surrendered his life to Christ. And I looked at the other little two boys that I knew. I said, have you guys done that? Yeah. And then I asked my two little new friends from the city. I said, have you done that, or are you still thinking about that? And they said, we're still thinking about that. So we went on and shared the gospel. And uh, I didn't play football with them because we're leaving in the morning at uh, 6 in the morning to go see Josh and Julie and our little grandbaby and possibly some more prospective grandbabies. And, and then we're going to go on a mission trip to Washington, D.C. Always pray for them. I'm always praying 
that I'll run into President Obama and any other congressman or senator so I can share Jesus. And see, I go to places where most people are afraid to go. You can ask my family. I just go right up to motorcycle cops and FBI agents that are secretive, and I just go right up to them and start talking to them. And it's amazing how they're open when I tell them I'm a pastor from St. Louis, and they're just open as I share Jesus with them, and I put my arm around them and pray with them, and you'd think I'd be arrested. But see, people really want to know that God loves them. You know those songs we just sang? They were great songs. People want to know why. Because God created them to know. But often we don't tell. And so I decided not to play football because my son wants me to play tennis. I'll probably come back home hurt, but I didn't want to go there hurt. I thought, at least, you know, value where I'm going to get hurt. So I didn't play with him. I went in-house and did what's safe for a 61-year-old man. I took an hour-and-a-half nap. <laughs> but as Kirk mentioned to you that we're here at the first of service, the Flyers are here yesterday because we had an incredible celebration. And the celebration was of Ron Moeller's life. Now, the reason why we had anything to celebrate is because Back when Mike, when, when Mike's the son, back when Ron and Edie were married, they found themselves early in their marriage in a place that divorce was staring them right in the face. They miserably failed. And if it had not been for someone sharing the grace of Jesus Christ for their lives, their, their marriage would have ended in divorce. And, and they've freely shared this with many. That's why even Mike yesterday said, after all these people for an hour and a half had given all these accolades about his dad, he said, you know, my dad has failed. And he went on, and if you didn't know, you might have even missed it. But see, that's why it's so important wherever we are in life and wherever we go, to find out where people are. Or otherwise, people just get what? Older. And it's possible even to come to church off and on all your life and just become older. But no one really asks you because we're afraid of offending people. Of just asking persons, where are you? Uh, the reason why I've often said to us as a church family, I believe it would be good for all of us to go to a funeral every week, at least once a month. Because every time I go to a funeral, and of course that's my job, to do funerals. But for years, God, Spirit, always speaks to me this question. And it's the first question ever recorded in God's Word. It's the question that God asked man, Adam. Remember the story, Genesis 3? Adam had not been the spiritual leader he needed to be. And a part of being a spiritual leader as a husband, men, is protecting your wife. 
The scripture says that a husband is to love his wife, and in that love, his, the husband, as Christ sanctifies us, is to sanctify the wife. What does that mean? It's to mean, husband, that you so protect your wife spiritually. You pray with her. You minister the word. You're the priest to her. You lead her by example, that you protect her because she's what? The weaker vessel. And if you don't protect her, the enemy's going to come after her. Now, that's what happened in Genesis 3. You remember the story? Eve was tempted. Where's Adam? He's not around protecting. She falls. And then he's not there to stand strong in the Lord. So she, sin always invites company. So she says, Adam, join me in my company. He, he doesn't. No faithfulness there. He knows failure. And he takes it. And then what did they both do? When you sin, sin always does what? It leaves you, because we were created for righteousness in God. Sin causes us to want to what? Hide. You feel shame. You feel condemnation. And so they were trying to hide from God. Are any of you today in church and trying to hide from God? Happens every Sunday, doesn't it? See, you like me to stay up here, don't you? I have a man in our church family that just a few weeks ago, I had to go to him and talk to him about something very serious. Something about very wrong very dark that someone had come to me and said pastor I know you led this person to Christ several years ago and I saw this person doing this and I'm afraid to go to this person because they'd get real mad at me so that's what people come to the loving pastor for right because they want the people to get mad at me in fact, my wife often says, she's sitting up here front, she says, why does it always have to be you? I said, well, honey, that's part of the calling of being the shepherd. When the wolves are eating the sheep up, the shepherd needs to go right, even though the sheep get mad. And I, I, I want you to know, I don't go to many because I know they get mad. But in this case, it was very serious. And I just pray, Lord, bring him by. You know, this person sets as far away from me. They're still coming to church, praise the Lord, but they set as far as they can from me now. They don't come by me because I talk to them, and they're upset and mad at me. And they're on my list even before I leave town to call again and just say, I love you. I love you. But see, God comes to us, and he says, where are you? Where are you? You know, last Sunday, I used a puzzle. For you that couldn't be here, I had a puzzle on a table here, and it was a 2,000-piece puzzle. And as soon as we got here, I, it had never been opened. I opened it, and I just dumped it, and I said, who's good with puzzles? And we had a little 8th, ninth grade boy raise his hand. He came up here, and I dumped it, and then I walked right away with what? the box top. And he said, hey, I need the box top. How do you put a puzzle? 
And I said, you know, that's the way with a lot of us. We go through life and we're puzzled about life. The Lord says you always have the victory. The Lord says you're always more than a conqueror. And yet we go through life often and we can't put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I said, what's the box top? The box top is the Word of God. And he wasn't doing very good. And finally, a lady from the audience that was too shy to get up the first that's real good in puzzles, her husband was even trying to get up, felt sorry for him and said, I'll help him. At the time, I think he had two pieces of the puzzle put together in 20 minutes because he had found two what with the outside straight edge that he had connected. Well, by in another 15 minutes, because this lady was better and they were helping, by the time we got through, they had about 20 pieces of puzzle put together. But they still had 1,980 pieces of the puzzle put together. And in the second service, it was my son Philip that has learned from his mother, because I've never met anyone better than Ronnie with puzzles. And he, so he volunteered, and he got up there. And he was really thinking he was hot stuff because he had about 35 pieces of puzzle. And, and immediately, this person went in the first service. As soon as Philippa went up, Evetta Lennox said, I'll help him, and she just jumped up. And see, they did much better. But then on Monday, Ronnie was in a car wreck. And we had to take her to the doctor. She was rear-ended on Manchester. So don't hug her too hard today. She's still fragile. But I ran into a man that said, Pastor, last Sunday, it's amazing. He's in a men's Bible study. He's here all the time with his family. But he said, as they were playing with that puzzle, and as you would walk back and forth and make analogies how we're not putting our puzzle together, it went, wow, it hit me. For you that haven't been here for the last month, about five weeks ago, we had Gary Smalley in our church. And he's a guy that's had 16 number one bestsellers. He sold over 5 million books. He's had his TV program, radio. And when I asked Gary, and I shared this, and it's in your message notes on the left-hand side, what's the greatest thing, the three or four things that God's ever taught you? He's 71 years age. And he said, well, the greatest thing that God's ever taught me is to think humility. Because he said, you know, years ago, here I was on TV. I was the number one best seller in books on family relationships and marriage in the United States. And 10 to 20,000 people were coming to see me, and they'd line up for 100 yards to get my autograph. And yet... All I knew at home was conflict in my marriage. And my children were having struggles and problems. And here I was a Hollywood star, but I was falling apart where it really counted. And in brokenness, God brought me to understand this. I'm not going anywhere with God unless I thank humility. Well, I've been sharing that with our church family for the last month. You're not going anywhere with God. Well, this man said, Pastor, I want you to know, last Sunday God broke through to me like it was the first time I ever heard it. And I went home, and as our family were doing what they do, just there I, I, I shocked them, and I said, Family, we are not going anywhere with God until we start thinking humility.
And he said, in the mystery of God's working, it's like my wife got the same whammy I got. And no one argued. No one fussed. We kind of just all stopped. And you know how when you receive something, you just kind of take a sigh breath? We're not going anywhere. And I just want to ask you today, because see, all this week, I've been working on the funeral we had yesterday. It had a lot of details. I mean, we were expecting five to hundred to a thousand people here yesterday. We took out chairs this morning. We had about 580. We prepared a dinner for 300. I mean, there were a lot of details to that yesterday. And everything just looked like it just all automatically happened. That's because there was a lot of preparation. So all week long, and everything else that I normally do with the building and everything, and ministry and counseling and Bible study preparation and preparation for today, there was that funeral that was just on my mind every day. Okay, we got to get this done. We got to call these people. Got to do this. So dying was on my heart all, day, all week last week. And, and so as I was preparing for Sunday, it was just natural. I wanted to ask you this question that God always asked me. Where are you? Where are you? And I'm not asking about, well, I'm sitting in the second row. I'm not, a, I'm not asking, where's your address? Where are you? I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking, where are you in your spiritual journey? See, write that in, Roman number one. Where are you? in your spiritual journey with God. It was like these two young men from the city yesterday. I asked them, where are you? I said, have you trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Are you still thinking about it? And they had the courage to say, well, we're still thinking about it. Where are you? See, and go ahead and write in capital A there and put a, put a circle and an asterisk by it. Until we think humility... We are going nowhere. You may keep going to church. You may go serve God in different... You're not going anywhere with God because He is the one Lord God. It doesn't matter what you try to do for Him or don't do for Him. You're not going anywhere with Him because He's the one Lord God. And we can try to fool each other, but you can't fool this God. He knows if you've humbled yourself before God. See, in just a couple of Sundays, you're going to hear an incredible, powerful testimony here. Many of you students or parents of students know who Caitlin Paluzzi is. Brenda, you know who Caitlin Paluzzi is. Well, see, a couple of months ago, her mom was told by doctors that she was losing her eyesight, going blind. She was having these incredible migraine headaches. She was throwing up. I mean, they thought she was dying, and she lost her eyesight. And see, when she was 9 or 10 in a Baptist church, she prayed the prayer. She believed in God. She believed in Jesus. But she's going to tell you her life, that there was no repentance in her life. And she went through her life, and no one ever taught her about that to come to Christ is to have the attitude of humility. 
What is humility? You humble yourself, no more independence, no more rebellion, and you humble yourself before God. So here she's laying in a hospital blind. And finally, crying out to God, God opens the eyes, not these eyes, but the eyes of her heart. Ephesians 1, that Paul says, pray that God might open the eyes of your heart, not these eyes. And God opened those eyes, and she realized her arrogance toward God, her pride toward God, her independence, her rebellion, and she began to see things that she'd never seen before because she was too busy. And God said, where are you? And I said, Kathy, you got to come share this with our church family. Because, of course, when she's telling me this, it's just tears galore. And God said, where are you, Kathy? And Kathy's going to share how finally she went from being a faithful church member and a servant in her church, she doesn't go here, to being born again and being repentant. She said, Pastor, I all my life have tried to act like I'm the sweetest, and if you know her, the sweetest, joyous, smiling, grinning, gracious lady you would ever meet, but inside I was bitter and angry and shameful and guilty, and I've been hiding and seeking from God my whole life. Always in church, never missed a Sunday. And she's going to say, oh, my friends that I don't even know, but because you're in this church, I call you my friends. Don't wait until a crisis of crisis comes into your life where you think you're going to lose it all. If that's what it takes, because God loves you, he wants you to know him. See, until we think humility, look at Philippians 2, 5, 8. Let's read it together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what humility is. Humility says there is one Lord God and I'm not Him. And if I'm ever going to know Him, if I'm ever going to have Him work in my life, because God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, I must humble myself. Let me just ask you, for all of you that say you're a Christian, whenever that was that you say you got saved, did you understand humility? Or did you just want God to do something for you? Did you just hear a message about hell and want God to forgive you so you wouldn't go to hell? Because the Bible says until there's godly sorrow in our life that the Spirit brings us to humble ourselves before God, that's what brings us to change our mind about our sinfulness. Until then, we're just sorry for the consequences of sin and we keep asking God to forgive us but you can look in your life. And I was so proud of Jonathan. When I said, we're sitting on that front bench on your porch, and I said, Sugar, I don't know, so you just tell me. You can look back in your life from the time you prayed that prayer. Honey, was your life ever changed because you humbled yourself? 
and you were under the sovereign control of God and the authority of his word. And he just looks and he says, no. That takes courage, doesn't it? And you know, isn't it amazing that the older we become and the longer we play the game, it's harder and harder to admit that, isn't it? Because we have a reputation to withhold. Maybe it's just with ourselves. Because I can tell you, if you don't have godliness in your life, you're the only one that doesn't know it. If you haven't been changed and you live with anyone at home, just ask them if you won't get mad at them. Have you been changed? Right? This is kind of an adult message, isn't it? But see, when you die, that's kind of adult, isn't it? Knowing where you are in life instead of just going through life and saying, man, I'll be glad when this message is over. I came to have fun and hear some jokes and laugh. Hey, I want you to laugh. Let me tell you, when you experience God, you'll laugh a lot. Right? The way to fun is holiness. The way to joy is knowing God. See, just write by one, two, three there under capital A, three ways of going nowhere. And these are common ways. Three ways of going nowhere. And I'm talking with God. Number one, is we go nowhere and just write it in the line under the number one in becoming wise in the Lord. Some of you will remember when you saw the Love Dare movie several years ago and you know we did the 40 weeks of Love Dare study that one of the major theses in that book of loving one another which we all desire was this little statement under number one that's why I put it in quotations we can only give, do you remember it? We can only give what we have. And that's why I put down Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. You know, people every week call me or come to me because they need wisdom. They're facing a difficult situation, circumstance in their life, and they say, Pastor, what would be the best thing to do here? What does God's Word say about this? And see, a, a, a junior in high school came to me with this this week, and I, I just felt led. I said, well, let's look at Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, and we'll see how we learn to be wise instead of making these bad decisions one after another. And let's read it. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord. Say that with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this student said, Pastor, what is the fear of the Lord? 
because that's the conclusion of all the reasons we need wisdom and we need to study the Proverbs. So the conclusion of being a wise person is you're going to have the fear of the Lord. And until you have the fear of the Lord, you're not going to get wiser because it's the beginning. I said, well, sweeties, if you look up in a Hebrew dictionary, because I did years ago, the fear of the Lord, it's talking about a humble recognition of who God is. Deuteronomy 6, 4, He is the one Lord God, right? And in that humble recognition of who God is, you have a reverence. That's our English word. You have a reverence and an awe, A-W-E, of this one mighty Lord God. And the Bible says, until we think humility and humble ourselves before God to acknowledge who He is, we're not going to be wise. We're going to keep making the same decisions that have consequences that hurt us. I can't tell you, Kirk Matthews is here and my wife is here, and they've been here. Kirk's heard me preach for 21 years plus. Ronnie's heard me preach for 42 years. I can't recall. Can you guys ever recall when I haven't been sane? Because I learned it when I was 22 to do it in my own life, that I've been saying to our men, men, we need to do what each day? We need to humble ourselves and what? Get on our knees and lead our wives in what? Prayer. And we all agree. I mean, no one's ever said and come up and said, Pastor, you're a heretic. Where'd you get that thought? We all know that's right. That's needed. Well, I have the privilege each week with meeting with 50 to 70, depending on traveling, 50 to 70 men in four Bible studies. And some of them are here this morning, so they're my witness. And so these men are men that get up at 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to be at a men's Bible study at 6. Or, or we have one in the evening, and they come from working all day, and they're tired, and they skip supper. I mean, these are men that want to be in the Word of God. I mean, these are men that have a passion for God's Word. These are men that have a priority for God's Word. And these are men that have proven by their presence they want to know God. I, I remember when I used to play on a church softball team, it amazed me. If we had a game, the early game at 5.30, our men somehow would get off work, race, and they'd be there. If we had a 9.30 game, it didn't matter if they had to get up at 4. They were there. Because people do what they want to do. So I'm talking about the cream of the crop in our men having a heart for God. There at these Bible studies. And I said, men, honest engine. 
Now, most of you aren't old enough to know what an honest engine is. But see, I grew up where the most exciting show other than Tarzan in the 50s was what? The Indians and the white man fighting. And one of the favorite plots, and you didn't have to have much creativity because just watching something on a screen was something big. But one of the major plots of the Cowboys and the Indians was is they would get together and they would be trying to bring a peace treaty and the smoking pipe, and the Indians always wanted the white man to not do what? Kill their buffalo. See, you are too young. But what would happen to the white man? The white man would break the oath. And so the Indians would come after the white man, and that's where they'd have the fight. So I grew up in the 50s that the Indians took pride. They kept their word. And so we would say, honest engine. So I said to my men, honest engine. We're here because we know we want to know God. We're here because we want to know the Word. And we're here because we know it's not good enough to hear the Word because you deceive yourself unless you what? Just do it. So this week in every men's Bible study, I said, how many of you every day this last week up to this day, we've been talking about it a month, how many of you every day have gotten on your knees like we said we would do and you said, Lord, I'm going to thank humility today. Now remember, it wasn't just this month we've been talking about this. It's ever since they've been in this church, they've been hearing it. In one group with 24 men, how many men you think? This took courage, but we love each other and we're honest with you. How many men do you think in a group of 24 men raised their hand? I've got fingers left over. And we all know this. Now, don't let the devil condemn you now. We're never here to be condemned, but we are here to hear the truth to what? Be set free. Because I don't want you just getting older and die and never experience God. And I said, men, by the way, in no group was there ever. One group had about 35% of the men. That's by far the highest. I said, where are we missing it, man? I know how you love God. I know how you make it a priority to be in these studies. Where are we missing it? You guys help me. If the shepherd can't get the sheep into the pen, what does he do? He says, I need help. See, if we don't learn to do the truth, we'll never grow in wisdom to live life in truth. See, go to that number two. This is a huge one. 
that we go nowhere if we don't think humility. See, write this down in your line. Only God can forgive. We go nowhere in dealing with anger till we thank humility. See, right in number two, this is an insight that was shared at this Love Passionate Conference. The pastor of Joe White and Gary Smalley shared this, but it's actually an insight that Gary Smalley said years ago. I heard him say it years ago, and that is anger is a secondary emotion from being empty. Every one of us in our lives, I sure have, have struggled with unresolved anger. Because we've said it many times. Let me see if you remember it. Anger is caused by three things. What are they? Hurt, fear, and frustration. Right. And we've all had more hurts, more frustrations, more fear than any of us could imagine. So we all have to deal with this thing called unresolved anger. And, and, and look how God tells us how to do it. Let's read it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See that? Therefore, be imitators of God. Well, the imitation of God, when Jesus came, he said, the Father and I are one. If we imitate him, what must we do? We must thank humility. And until we do, we will not be able to forgive ourselves or others that hurt us. We won't be able to forgive others that frustrate us. We won't be able to forgive others that cause us fear. Because do you understand? We in our flesh cannot forgive. Only by the power of God released in our life, and that's not going to happen until we're humble because God opposes the proud. We're not going to have the power, the passion, the priority to forgive ourselves or others. And then the third way, i got to move on. The third way we're not going anywhere until we think humility is number three. And just write in that line before I give you the answer, think about how long you say you have been a Christian. Think about how long you say you have been a Christian. And no one's going to know this now but you. Have you got that in your? And maybe you're, you say, well, I haven't come to that place yet. But if you say you have put your faith in Christ and you've repented and you've surrendered your life to Christ, how far have you 
come since you were born again. When you're born again, you're a babe in Christ. Have you learned to forgive when others hurt you? Or is that still a huge problem? Have you, does God, has He given you a passion that every day you make time to be in His Word? Have you learned your need for accountability and encouragement so you make time to be with others in a Bible study? Have you learned the joy of in your family relationships of being humble to each other and there is a time other than at mealtime when the pastor comes for a meal that you pray? And, and, and when you have a spat or a disappointment or a disagreement, you don't hold each other hostage with that. You just know because you've grown. You, you've learned to trust God and overcome fear, and you have a passion to share Jesus. You, you live each day worshiping the Lord, valuing Him as first. You've learned to give your first fruits and offerings to the Lord. Are, is your life really much the same as it was whenever you said, I receive Christ. See, where are you? See, right in number three, take responsibility for growing up in Christ, for going on in Christ. Philippians 3, 13, 14 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. That is, I hadn't, I hadn't got there all the way. But one thing I do, that's called single-mindedness. I forget what lies behind me, good or bad, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is that your attitude? That there is nothing in your life that's compelling you more than to know God. And see, you'll see that each day in your life. Do you want to know God better than anything else? Do you want to make Him known more than anything else? If you say, not really. In love and gentleness and respect, I say to you, church family, I love. I've given my life the last 19 years for you and continue to do so. See, as the spiritual daddy of a lot of you, just think of your children. If you were a parent and you had children and they were out just getting slaughtered, would you just look out the window and say, yeah, right now, that rattlesnake's just bit my little boy six times and he's laying there screaming in the street, but I'll just go back here and sit down and watch the ball game. Yeah, those yellow jackets, there's about 12 of them right now in the hair of my little seven-year-old just biting him good, and he's screaming and hollering. But he better fend for himself. He should know better. See, as your pastor, I just watch this endlessly among our church family. 
And the dilemma I have is because most people get offended at me if I come to try to talk to them about it. My only opportunity is to pray for you, offer ministries that you can study the Word. But my only time is now when I'm trying to teach you other than men's Bible studies. And I just plead with you to be honest today with courage and say, God, I'm going to answer this question, where am I? I'm not just going to get older. I'm not just going to come into church and smile and wave. I'm going to say, oh, God. Now, see, that's an individual checkup. Where are you? Whether you're a child, a student, a single, a married person, a grandpa, a widower, where are you? Have you answered that today? And you know what? If you find out you're not where you want to be, what do you do? You get help. Right? You get help. If you're not where you want to be, you know what? Praise God, this is a loving fellowship. I've never known anyone that no matter what their sin is, that's come and said, I need help, that they haven't been given. I mean, we've had men on pornography, men that have been unfaithful to their wife, wives that have been unfaithful to their husband. We've had everything under the sun in this fellowship. And never has anyone ever come and said, this is my shame, this is my sin, this is my guilt, that they haven't been embraced with love and mercy and kindness. And I just encourage you, if you don't like the answer when you answer it yourself, where am I? Get help. And lastly, this is for us that are married. Because a lot of us are married in here. And for you that are not married, put this down deep in your heart. See, where are you, Roman numeral 2, in your spouse's spiritual journal journey? Where are you in your spouse's spiritual journey? Now, up above, capital A said, until we thank humility, we are going nowhere. Ronnie and I had to learn this hard 39 years ago. Until we know, capital A, agape love. Agape love, we will what? Fail. And here's how we fail until we know agape love. And you guys know what agape love is, don't you? That's the word in the New Testament when it's saying, for God so loved the world, that's agape love. That's his love. See, there's eros love. Eros love, young men, is when you see a girl that you think is the prettiest girl in the world, and you think, I love her. And ladies, when you see that hunk of a man and you think he's the best-looking guy you've ever seen and you say, I think I love him, that's eros love, E-R-O-S. And then there's a phileo love. Philadelphia was named the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia comes from the Greek word phileo. That's family love. Now, the problem with eros love, 
and phileo love, we've all had moms and dads and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts, and then when they violate us terribly, we have a struggle with what? Bitterness and unforgiveness. And we want to get away from them. That's why eros love and phileo love always, given enough time with sinful activity, will fail. And when you get married with eros love and phileo love, you know what you think? Fill it in there, A. You think that your spouse is supposed to meet needs that only God can meet. Because when you begin your dating relationship and in the euphoria of eros love and phileo love, you thought, man, I don't even need to eat, sleep, anything. If I'm with this person, they just make me feel what? Like a million dollars. Now let me tell you something I don't think I've ever said to you that just came to my mind this week saying to a person that's thinking about divorce. See, and before I tell you that, let's just read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 11. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 11. You know it if you know anything about the Bible. Love is patient. That means long-suffering, kind. Love does not envy. And by the way, this is the word agape. So I'll just say it. Agape is patient, long-suffering, and kind. Kindness is I don't treat the person like they treated me. I treat them like God treats them. I just love them. I'm kind. I'm forgiving. I'm encouraging. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, there it is, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. That is, I had eros love and phileo love. I thought like a child. Someone did something dirty to me, I wanted vengeance. I reasoned like a child. I didn't deserve that. I think I'll get even. Or I'll just go away from it. But when I became a man, I gave up that thinking, and I realized I got to be a person of agape love. See, write it in, number one, marriages begin and end and I want you to put in the blank there. What do you think marriages begin and end because? A number one reason in courts would be why? Because we're incompatible. We just don't get along. Another number one reason would be what? They've hurt me so much. By the way, none of these are the right answer. I'm just giving you common reasons. Uh, they hurt me too much. They've failed me too greatly. Or let's use the big one. They've been unfaithful. But I want you to know, marriage is in not for any of those reasons because godly character overcomes all of them. That's agape love. 
That's what that says that we just read. See, write it in. Until we know agape love, we will fail. Oh, we got that one. Marriages begin and end, number one there, because they never know agape love. And that is the only reason why marriages fail. Now, if you're struggling today in your marriage, just know this. There is so much hope for you. Why? Because God can transform your life if you will thank humility and stop thinking everything else that you think. Think humble before God and say, God, I need you to change me. Notice I didn't say, I need God to change my spouse. That is very true too. But I need God to change me so I can agape love my spouse. See, let's read on there. I've learned to share this in all my marriage counseling. Because people come in and they're going to prove to me there's no hope for their marriage. And they kind of want my stamp of approval, so pastor, you'll approve of me getting a divorce. No, marriages begin and end because they never know agape love. See, what happened is they begin with an attraction. That's eros. And in the attraction, that leads to what? Affection. As soon, Josh, you're looking right at me. You're locked in with me, buddy. As soon as you went out with your sweetie there, you were attracted to her, and she thought, what a hunk of a man that Josh is. And what did you want to do first things first, Josh? As soon as you picked her up, if you went for a date and you picked her up at home, what couldn't you wait to do? You wanted to hold her hand. Remember? Now, as soon as you held her hand, how long did it take you to hold her hand? Not long. Well, as soon as you wanted to hold her hand and you got to hold her hand, what's the next thing you wanted to do? You wanted to put your arm around her, and that wasn't enough. You wanted to what? Kiss her. To show you the kind of honesty and transparency I have in my men's group, two out of four of them, when I said that about six, eight months ago, we were doing a Bible study, and we were teaching this, I said, to the group. I said, now, as soon as you went out with him, and I'm going for the hold the hand, I said, what'd you want to do? And men blurted out, have sex. I mean, they were just staying where they were. Why? Because that's our depraved nature. That's eros love. So keep going with me. We wanted to have this affection and the more affection we get, man, the eros love gets pumped up. And we start dreaming about what we can what? Accomplish. You know, what we can do together. It can be so much better because I can't live without you, babe. And so what do we do? We make an announcement of the wedding date and we get married. Now, ladies, you answer this next blank. Because often men don't know it, but every woman knows it. You get married to experience what, ladies? 
Remember when the preacher says, and the two shall become, say it, ladies, you want to experience oneness. And oneness is enjoying closeness. But having disappointments, disagreements, and differences, and we all have those because it's just life, and it's life with two sinners. And not knowing agape love, what occurs? A distance. And that growing distance in time leads us to lose heart and quit. See, where are we in our spouse's spiritual journey? Just write in that line, number two. I must be transformed by God so character will overcome everything else. Whatever your struggle is, I need God's character to overcome that difficulty. See, write it in, number two. Only transformed by the love of Christ, we learn the holy privilege, and it is a holy privilege, because apart from God, we'll never know it, and the power of three things needed in every marriage. Forgiving, honoring, and serving one another. And we finish with Jesus. Jesus had poured his life into those disciples that he appointed as apostles. And right before he goes to the cross, in John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, where he was going to be betrayed and crucified, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that's what he's talking about, the crucifixion, to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And you know what he did to love them? Well, when he was taking the supper with him, and they were saying that they would never betray him, especially Peter, remember? And Judas leaves. What does he do? He already forgives them. And then what does he do? He honors them. Because back then, he washed their feet. And that's what you did when a guest would come to your house. And he, the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself and he honored. First, he's already forgiven them. He honors them. And when you honor someone, you serve them. See, only as I'm transformed by the love of Christ, I learn the holy privilege and power of forgiving, honoring, and serving one another. And go to verses 14 to 17. See, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So as we close today, I ask you one last time, where are you? Now, you know the good news. I told you the bad news. I wanted to leave the good news till last.
in all four of those men's groups. After just a few men, after all these years, I said, men, I know what you want to be. You want to be a godly man. You, you know you're not going anywhere with God unless you humble yourself every day. So honest engines again. No heads bowed, no music playing. No next-to-death story, just has God worked in your heart. How many of you would say to each other that every day this week, and next week you just know, even though I'm not going to be here and the men were in the group, you're going to ask these men first things first. How many of us were on our knees every day? And we were realizing we've lived enough life. We're going to think humbly. We're going to submit our life to God's authority, His work. We're going to surrender to His presence. We're going to settle the issue, Lord, I'm yours. And out of that power and passion and priority, he's going to give us to share Jesus with others. How many of you do that? And you know what the good news is? Everyone in every group except one man lifted his hand. Isn't that good? I mean, from 5% to every group but one was 100%. And they know we, we follow that up. You say, well, what about the one man? Well, he was lost. I've got an appointment with him when I get back to take him through the Scriptures so he can begin a life thinking humility. I mean, isn't that the only good reason not to think humility? Because you're lost? So I ask you today. And I ask you because I love you. And I know some of you get mad at me. And I'm sorry you get mad at me. Praise the Lord, you still come, even though you do get mad at me. My wife says, you know, if you say that, you'll make them mad. Growing up, I made my three sons often mad at me. And Mama always wanted them to be happy. And sometimes I'd even have to say to her, Honey, I don't care how mad they are at me. I want them to learn holiness because then they will be happy. So I just ask you. Now, if you belong to Jesus, this is a good question for you. If you don't belong to Jesus yet, of course you won't do it. But we need to make an appointment or someone gets saved. You only got one life. Where are you? So how many of you and even though Philip's teaching next Sunday, so I can fully enjoy my trip this week, I'll be here, and I'm going to ask you. But let me ask you today. How many of you would say, I don't want to just get older in my life. I want to know God. I, I want to be in the position, God, to work in my life. So every day this week, before him, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to thank humility today. It's your will, Philippians 2, 5. Let this attitude be in you. That means I'm going to humble myself before you, God. Every day this week. Inch by inch is a cinch, right? Let me see your hands. Amen. Amen. Yeah, just hold them up for a while. 
I want your family members to sin. Thomas, is yours up or not? Yeah, you kind of pulled it down there on me, buddy. You know what that means? Okay, you can put them down. That means if big sister uses her size on you, you just saw her. She put her hand up, right? Right? Don't be afraid of her. She does something to you, you come tell Grandpa, all right? We'll whip her. Okay, now, if she starts acting unkind, ugly, that's not being humble, that's being arrogant. You just say, Sister, you know, we both raised our hand, we're going to thank humility. Right? Right. If Mama or Daddy starts instructing you, it's time to get ready and go to bed, you don't have an argument with them. That's arrogance. See how this will change our whole life? It'll change your marriage. It'll change everything. And as far as I could tell, nearly every one of you raised your hand. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and just praise the Lord. If you're with a family member, just take their hand. Now, when someone doesn't think humility, you don't get arrogant with them. You just say, very humble. Remember, we said we were going to thank humility. Father, just thank you for working in our hearts today. We want to go with you, God. We don't want to just get older. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. And we start this as the first day of the rest of our life. And, Father, I just thank you for your working in all of our lives as we thank humility. As we're transformed by you to know your perfect love. That we can have restored relationships that we can persevere and forgive in any relationship to your honor, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know I left out that last line. This is another Gary Smalley line, but when he said it, I said, Gary, of everything you've said, boy, that touched my heart. I'm going to use that. And he said, you use it. See, I want to live my life. Ron Moeller was 71. Ten years older than me. A few months ago, I went to a dear pastor friend. Some of you know him, Gary uh, Taylor. He was 71. Went to both their funerals. What if I only have 10 years to live? What if I get killed in Washington, D.C. or on the subway? Here's a goal of my life. And it will be your goal, too, when you hear it. See, I want to live my life thinking humility so I can experience God and living agape love so that godly character makes a difference in all my relationships so that when I die, my children and my grandchildren will want to repeat it. And that's what goes in that last line. See, I, I want to live my life, and I put in that my children and my church family will want to repeat it. Isn't that a good goal for life? Just write that down so you don't forget it. I wrote it right in the front of my Bible. I want to live my life so my children will want to repeat it. You can put all kinds in there. I want to live my marriage 
so my children will want to repeat it. Amen. Sweeties, I know this hasn't been a fun study, but it's sure been a good open heart surgery that God wants to bring a healing in all of our lives. God bless you. I love you and the Lord. You're dismissed.